This coming Tuesday is the 36th anniversary of what I believe to be one of the greatest pranks that has ever gotten pulled off in history. So on the East Coast, there are a whole bunch of very well-known and prestigious universities. And if you've ever been out there, or maybe you just know this, that they tend to have little rivalries among each other, especially those Ivy League schools and such, as to who is the best of the best. Two of the schools that tend to, you know, vie for the best of the best are the schools Yale and Harvard. And in 1982, Yale was playing Harvard in their annual football game. And in the middle of the game, in the middle of the football field, seemingly all by itself, a metal contraption popped up out of the grass in the middle of the field and started to blow up an eight-foot-in-diameter weather balloon. On that balloon were three letters. M-I-T, which stands for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, another prestigious college on the East Coast whose team was not playing in the football game, and yet MIT wanted everyone to recognize that they were indeed the best. If you were to YouTube this prank, you'd find that it was about four years in the making between the idea being hashed and then trying to figure out how to create, I think they used a vacuum cleaning cleaner motor, uh, how to, you know, make this contraption to blow up a balloon, and then... Again, remember, this is 36 years ago, so technology was a little bit different. Um, how to find the time to bury all the wires under the football field or the cords, and then to get that contraption buried into the football field itself. And so these guys from, I think, Delta, Epsilon, Chi, or something like that, the, from a fraternity, they spent, they said, about eight different times breaking in, so to speak, into the Harvard football stadium, under the cover of night, breaking the rules to get this done. Now, what does this at all have to do with our message for today? Isn't there something that you romanticize about people who have the guts to break the rules? Especially when it's something, you know, like this that is not real earth-shattering bad or anything. Isn't there something in us that in certain seasons of life, or maybe even right now in your life, just tends to, to push against rules and, and people having rules in your life? And that's why so often it goes so badly when 20-somethings go off to college and then come home uh, again. It, it's, it's the rule thing, right? It, it, it's hard living under rules sometimes. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that this bothers people not just when people have rules that they're giving, but it bothers people sometimes even with their relationship with God. Um, in a survey that was done not too long ago, it was discovered that for people considering to be a Christian or at least to explore it, one of the things on top of the list 
that kept them from it or the thing that they disliked the most were all the rules. And if I become a Christian, well, there's going to be all these things that I can't do, that I really want to do, and all these things that I have to do. And if I don't, I'm going to feel all this guilt and all this pressure. So I'm just going to stay away from it all together. And so I I think the hot seat question that was before us this week that one of you put in the box back in September is a pretty good one. It goes like this. Why does it feel like God's rules take the fun out of life. Now, as we look at that question, and I I probably, you know, dissected it more than the person who wrote it intended, but I want to point out one thing about this question. It isn't like absolute, like why do God's rules take the fun out of life? It, It references a feeling that people have. Why is it that the way we feel? And in today's answer to this question, I really want to, at the heart of it, change the way you feel about God's rules or laws. There are two things that are true about rules. The first one is this. Every rule is restricting. That's the definition of a rule. It'll keep you away from something or it'll force you to do something. And sometimes we like them, sometimes we don't. But every rule, by definition, is restricting. And the second thing that's true about rules is that your feeling about a rule is going to be influenced by, by your understanding of it. And the greater understanding of it that you have, it might actually change the way you feel about it. So for instance, when I was growing up, uh, there was this rule at the community pool that I attended or went to. It was, you know, the old no running, which as a third grader, second grader, whatever it was, like, I just hated this rule. Like, all the buddies are in town, you know, so to speak. We're all at the pool. Why can't we just do whatever we want? And so, you know, we'd often pull one of these where you're running, then lifeguard sees you, and then you just, you know, start walking, and then hopefully not to be seen to get the old embarrassing whistle blow at you. Hey, you, no running, you know, type of thing. I just could not stand this rule. I did not get it. And then one day, One of my friends, running, fell, hit his head, split open a huge gash in the back of his head, and had to get a whole bunch of stitches at the hospital. And I'm like, huh, there might be some wisdom behind this rule. I I probably still don't like it, but, but I get it. I get it. Now, what we're going to look at today is the bigger picture behind God's rules. We're not going to be able to get to all the different nuances of God's rules and all the things that could be said about God's laws and God's rules, but we are going to get to the heart of it. And to start, here's what I'd like you to recognize. It's our first fill-in for today. That rules always assume some sort of a relationship. Otherwise, the rules do not apply to you. For instance— When's the last time that you were concerned in your personal life about the rules of Mexico or the rules of Germany or the rules of England or whatever? Unless you go there, it doesn't really matter to you because you have no relationship with that country. Rules assume some sort of relationship, whether it's a country, whether it's a team, whether it's a school, 
whether it's a workplace. And, and really, there are two types of ways that relationships and rules work. Sometimes you first get into relationship and then the rules apply to you. Maybe a country would be that way. Or how about a, a family? You didn't have to follow a bunch of rules and then maybe they would let you become a part of the family. You were born or adopted into the family. You became a part of the family. You had a relationship and then the rules applied to you. Parents, have you ever run into someone else's kids at a grocery store or at the mall or at a school function or even at church? And you're like, I wish I could set some rules for them, right? Have you ever wanted at a meltdown you saw at a grocery store to put someone else's kids on time out and apply your rules to them? You didn't do that, did you? I hope you didn't. It's kind of weird, right? Because they're not a part of your family. There's a relationship that happens first, and then the rules apply. The second category of relationship and rules is more like this. There are certain situations or relationships where you follow the rules, and then you're able to get into relationship. I have a, a goddaughter right now who is uh, applying or looking to get into the Navy. And there are certain mental requirements, certain physical requirements and tests that she needs to pass. And there's a whole bunch of rules that she needs to follow and sign on the dotted line. And then she can have a relationship with the Navy, so to speak. But if she doesn't follow the rules going forward, if she breaks too many of them, eventually the Navy will say, we have no relationship with you anymore. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you left people up to their own thinking about God with no other information, with no other direction, we naturally tend to think about our relationship with God and rules like the Navy and not like family. In fact, many of us, whether we're recognizing it or not, are living our lives that way. We think that if we follow the rules— God's going to love us more. You think that if you came to church on Sunday morning, your week is going to be better. It may be, but it's not because God is, has an attendance sheet in heaven with a little gold star next to your name, and now he can bless you because you followed the rules. Following the rules when it comes to our relationship with God is not the pathway to make him love us or to make him love us more. So then, why the rules at all? What place do the rules play? What's at the heart of all the rules that God makes for those who want to follow him? Well, as I was thinking through this question and considering all the scripture that could apply to this, I decided to take us back this morning to the most famous set of biblical rules that are really the summary of all of the rules that God has for us. There were 10 of them. They're not the 10 rules. They're called the 10 commandments. And there's this very interesting thing. When you turn to the 10 commandments that were given to Moses about 1,500 years before Jesus was born— the chapter does not start with the first commandment. The chapter and the giving of these 
commandments or rules by God starts with two other verses that set the tone for all ten rules that come afterwards. And if you miss these two verses, you miss the heart of the rules. If you miss these two verses, you don't fully understand the why behind the what. But you can thank me later. We're not going to miss those two verses this morning. It's Exodus chapter 20. We're going to begin here with verse 1. It says this, God spoke all these words, the words that we're going to follow, follow afterwards. I am the Lord, your God. And I really want you to focus on the word, your, there. Because that pronoun denotes what? It denotes a relationship. It denotes possession. What's the difference between I am the Lord, your God, the difference would be, I am the Lord, the God. If you're still not tracking with me the difference that possession makes, um, how about this? Um, the difference between, I am Ben, the pastor, or I am Ben, your pastor. Or how about this one? I am Ben, the husband. I am Ben, that only applies to one of you. Your, I'm sorry, uh, the husband, I am Ben, your husband. That only applies to one of you in this room, right? It's very different, that word your versus the word the. And so before God ever gave a single rule, he made it clear in his very first phrase that he considered himself to already have a relationship with the people that he was giving the rules to. Our second fill-in goes like this. Relationship come, came before the rules. For the Israelites, and we're going to talk more about this in just a second, there was relationship established first. I am the Lord, your God. You're mine. I am yours. Now, here are the commandments. Relationship came before the rules. Let's continue in that verse. It goes this way. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt— out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. That was the, the first commandment. And so as God wants them to understand the relationship he has with them before he gives them the rules, he sort of has them think backwards to something really big that had happened in their history. So these Ten Commandments were originally given to the Israelites, the Jews, the descendants of a man named Abraham. You got to understand something about that family and about that nation. They were not influential. They were not powerful. There was nothing special about the Jews. In fact, this family started with just two people. Their names are Abraham and Sarah. And for many, many years, they were just a farming, agricultural-type family, again, with no power, no prestige. In fact, um, about two generations after Abraham, there was a famine going through, uh, or a drought going through Israel. And uh, the, the father at the time, a man named Jacob, um, his son Joseph— some of you might remember these names. He had sort of risen to be really powerful in the country of Egypt. Long story behind it. But Joseph was in Egypt, 
And as Jacob's family was suffering drought and suffering the inability to have the food that they needed, Joseph convinced the Pharaoh that they would invite Jacob's family to come to Egypt so that they'd have the food that they would need. And that started out great. They were welcome guests in the country. One generation went by. Joseph died. And after that, it was 400 years of slavery for the Jewish nation. Still, nothing real special about them. After 400 years of slavery, God told Moses that he should go to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, and ask the Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave their slavery and leave Egypt and go back to Israel, which that sounds like an impossible request. Pharaoh said no. He said no a number of times. So then, guess what happened? God happened, okay? And he sent 10 plagues or 10 bad things to the the people of Egypt uh, to sort of get Pharaoh's attention, like boils on people's bodies and locusts and flies, a whole bunch of just bad stuff. And eventually, Pharaoh had had enough. He's like, all right, you can leave. Hurry up. Get out of here. And the Israelites were freed from their slavery to leave. The only thing that happened, though, is that Pharaoh changed his mind. In the process of the Israelites leaving, Pharaoh changed his mind. And so the Israelites, at a certain point, become trapped. As they're trying to leave slavery, they're trapped. To the north of them are some Egyptian fortresses. They could not go that way. To the south of them were a desert and some mountains. They couldn't go that way. To their east was the Red Sea. And this large nation could not swim across the Red Sea. And to the west was slavery. To the west was their past. To the west was that which they were hoping to get away from. Exodus chapter 14 verse 10 goes this way. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there, coming from the west, were the Egyptians marching after them. The Israelites were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. What they saw was slavery in the past. And what they saw on the other side and all sides were feeling trapped in that moment, trapped in their present, with slavery coming hard on them. But then you know what happened next? In probably one of the most dramatic events in all of the Old Testament, God sent a wind that blew all night. And this wind literally, miraculously blew the sea that had been a barrier for them. It blew the waters apart so that there was a wall of water here and a wall of water on the other side. And what sort of appeared was a pathway. God created a pathway a pathway 
away from slavery, a pathway towards happiness, a pathway towards a new life, a pathway towards a better life with God. Exodus 14, verse 29, so the Israelites went through the sea and they went through it on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. And that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians after the waters kind of came back together, after the Israelites had gone through, saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Fear, not in the sense of being afraid of God, but fear in the sense of having a great respect for God. And God rescued the Israelites and created a pathway to a better life and away from the slavery of their past. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This was like a couple months after this humongous event, miraculous event just happened. Just a couple months later. And they're like, yeah, we walked between the two walls of water. You are an amazing God. You did free us from slavery. And then God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And in that context, you have to imagine the Israelites thinking, well, that's pretty easy. Why would I have any other God? Look what you just did for us. And then nine other commandments continued. But all, you get the context? All in the context, not of what they did to earn relationship, but in the miraculous rescue that God did to give them relationship first. Now, we can think about this whole Egyptian event, and I don't think any of us have walked through, you know, dry ground with two walls of water on each side or anything like that. I get it. But there is an amazing comparison to the Israelites. Because here's what I do know. That you, like me, have felt at times enslaved by the sin that we cannot get away from. You've felt enslaved by an attitude that you wanted to change, about a, uh, a direction that you wanted to do better at, about forgiveness that you knew you should give, about a past that you wanted to sort of have a better attitude about, but you just could not get away from it. We can train our dog sometimes better than we can train ourselves. What is that? It's slavery. It's a slavery to a sin and a sinful nature that is in us. It's seemingly even just as things get better and we think we're getting away from that past action, that past activity, all of a sudden something comes up, we look behind, and it's coming right back at us again. It feels like there are fortresses to the north, a desert to the south, a wall on the east, and my slavery of the past charging at me on the west. And if you've ever felt that way, like you couldn't do what you knew you should, a pastor in the first century named Paul could relate. He has an entire 
chapter where he writes about this. I just picked one verse because it hits my heart. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Here's what Paul writes. I don't understand what I do. Have you ever felt that way? Like you just made this big commitment to change. But then what I want to do, I don't do. But what I do, I hate. I hate what I do. Paul is describing a a slavery that he felt. And a slavery that sometimes you and I feel as well. And there's something in us that knows when we struggle with sin so much, how could we ever, how could we ever on our own earn a relationship with God? I know the rules. I can't follow them. But here's the amazing thing. For you and I, God did not send the wind. He sent Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus blew open a path to God. He took people who all they knew was slavery to their sin and their bad thinking and their bad attitudes and all of that that would have kept them from the freedom of the promised land just beyond their sin. And when Jesus died, and then when he rose, the tomb wasn't the only thing that broke open that day. A new pathway, a pathway to relationship with God, blew open. And God established for us. Some of you might remember that on the day that Jesus died, Um, there was this curtain, this huge curtain that separated um, God's people from the Holy of Holies. It was kind of that place where God's presence dwelt, his special presence. And when Jesus died, what happened to the curtain? Split apart, blew open. Symbolic of a pathway now to God that is ours not because of rules that we follow, but is ours because of the rescue, that deliverance that Jesus won for us. You see, our, our, our next fill-in goes this way. Oh, let's, let's hit a passage first. This idea of living in response to what God has done for us is found all over the Bible. This is one of my favorites. Paul also writes this way. He writes, it's Christ's love that compels us. It's what Christ has done for us that moves us, that leads us to live a certain way. It's Christ's love, what he's done for us that compels us because we're convinced that one, Jesus died for all the world and therefore we all died. We don't need to die eternally. And he died for all. There's a result to it. Not that we just sit around twiddling our thumbs until heaven. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but instead for him who died for them and was raised again. And much like the Israelites just a couple months after this huge Red Sea parting, my question for you is this. Why would we not want to when we realize the slavery that Jesus just freed us from? 
And so you see, with God, it's our third fill-in for today, God's rules don't earn relationship. They are part of relationship. Now, I recognize that if we had the time, I could preach an entire sermon series just on this one question because there's a lot of things when it comes to God's rules and God's laws that we weren't able to touch on. For instance, God is perfect and holy. And if he wants you to do something or wants me not to do something, like the way that the difference is between us, like I could just say, you need to listen to him, and so do I. End of story. Amen. Now that, that's a sermon of itself. He's holy, I'm not. We're going to listen, all right? Or another thing I could have done is I could have taken all of these Ten Commandments or all the rules of the Bible, and I could have unpacked each one like my little second-grade mind unpacked the no-running-at-the-pool rule where I eventually began to see this wasn't just some arbitrary rule, but the people at the pool have our best intentions in mind. You know, that's true about God's rules. He knows how things best work. He knows how father-mother-parent relationship, parent-child relationships go. He understands how marriages best work. He understands the weight of a lack of forgiveness, how that weighs on people. He understands how greed and covetousness just terrorizes a person's life. In every single way, God knows what's better. And that could be a sermon of itself, unpacking the rules. But instead today, as I shared at the beginning, I just wanted to get to the heart of it. You see, sometimes God's rules don't bring short-term fun. But relationship with Christ, we have long-term joy and peace. And that peace and joy increases as we follow Christ and we follow his direction for us. So as one point of application for today as we kind of bring this all together. I have, to, um, I have to say that I didn't always live with joy in following Christ. Um, and I think something changed for me. I don't know if it was, I think it was in college, I think, at a certain point where I saw that just doing my own thing the way that I wanted to do it wasn't helping anything and wasn't even the best way and I began to better understand the difference that happens when we see the great love of our God before we even consider the rules and view the rules in light of that love. So I've used this application or this illustration before years ago, but it's, I thought it was worth sharing again. Um, a lot of you maybe remember back in the day that an acronym, WWJD, what, what did it uh, stand for? Someone help me out. What would Jesus do? So Mr. Robbie is sporting his WWJD bracelet, right? 
And he's about to say something to Mrs. Robbie that he shouldn't say. And he sees the bracelet, WWJD, and it's supposed to like remind him, Jesus wouldn't speak that way, so I wouldn't either, or I shouldn't either. Or you're rolling over into bed, out of bed, and you turn off the alarm clock, and you're going to sleep in instead of go to church. But you've got your WWJD pajamas on, and so it's like, oh, I really need to get up and go to church, right? Or Mr. Zemer's got his WWJD bumper sticker. I know you had one. I, I just know it. And that's a reminder for him as he's driving. I've got that bumper sticker on my car. I need to be nicer. No road rage, Mr. Zemer, okay? And does it work? It can. And I'm not saying that you should get rid of all your WWJD stuff, but let me just say this. Very rarely when you live your life according to WWJD, is there joy in following the rules? Well, Jesus would get up for church, so I guess I got it too. Jesus wouldn't, you know, have colorful language on the road, so I, I, I can't either. I want to, but Jesus wouldn't. It's really a law motivation, a guilt motivation, and not what we're talking about today. What if we change it up a little bit, take out the W, that took me about 20 minutes on ProPresenter to figure out how to do that. So I hope you enjoyed it, okay? <laughs> yes. And replaced it with this, an H, which would then stand for, what has Jesus done? And my mindset about God's rules totally changed when I go back to the empty tomb and the pathway that he blew open for me to have relationship with me. This is relationship through Christ and then the rules coming afterwards. And when I think, when you think about the slavery that Jesus freed us from that would have taken us away from him forever, and the new life that we have. I'm not going to do it perfectly, and you're not either, but there is a renewed sense of joy and purpose. Whether it's as a teenager, a 20-something, a middle-aged person, or senior citizen, in living out today, following Christ. So, how about this fourth fill-in? Live a WHJD type of life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as I think about the pathway that you blew open for the Israelites, it's easy to feel so disattached to a sea being moved open. But when that happens, just remind me today in this moment that there was something even greater that happened as you blew open a pathway that we might be in relationship with you, that we get to live in that relationship every single day through your forgiveness and grace. So Lord, instill in each one of us a stronger desire to not just be content, to be thankful, but to, as you have directed, live out our thankfulness as we follow you. And if that means following laws and rules we don't think are fun, so be it. Give me joy even in that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.